Welcome to the Reenactors Corner. Events, of course, have downtime, but how should the downtime be spent? Let's discuss it. Hey guys, this is Chris here again with Lassa. Welcome to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. How are you doing today, Lassa? I am actually uh, marvelous. I'm excited and stoked, and yeah, I'm just happy. What about you? I'm doing really good. Um, it's the beginning of fall, which is uh, a season that I really enjoy. I'm glad that I made it through the uh, harsh some sun of the winter. Uh, so I'm I'm in a good mood. That's perfect. Um, Talk about that. It's the fall. Winter is coming. Uh, did you give the cold weather episodes a listen yet? I haven't had a chance. <laughs> All right. I'm behind. I'm behind on listening to this podcast that I'm on. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, but, yeah, um, I was going to say, we uh, actually have a quick little announcement before we dive into today's topic which is downtime at events um just want to give a shout out to some new patrons that have signed up and we highly appreciate that uh they are brendan thomas jacob and red army reenactor thank you so much cool thanks a lot guys we really appreciate it very much really helps out you know costs money to make the podcast so it's cool uh, that Lhasa doesn't have to spend it all. <laughs> Your words are good. Yeah, Lhasa's right, a hard-working so. guy. You know, he works hard for all that money. Not like me, not like a rich person who doesn't work. You know what I mean? Lhasa has to work really hard. You just sell, like, old uniforms and you're, you're a billionaire on that. Yeah, I mean, I really only do that for a hobby. I just am super wealthy and just that's that's just it, <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm just a super wealthy guy. I actually won on the lottery yesterday. Nice, nice. Five dollars. Good, that's good. I'm, I, I'm not sure what to do with all of this money, man. Well, don't spend it all in one place. That's a weird saying that we have, and I don't really even know what that means. I went to the store and actually spent all five dollars on a frozen pizza. A frozen pizza? Yeah. It's very sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> Says the guy who sleeps in mud. Well, you know, I eat, uh, I only eat cheeseburgers. I eat 50 cheeseburgers a day, no more, no less. Uh, I remember at that's... the one event where I bought you a cheeseburger. Yeah, well, you gotta have them. I gotta have them. You know, if <laughs> that's every event is going to have authenticity compromises and for me one of them is that I have to eat cheeseburgers because I have to eat those every day <laughs> I I think we just uh, took the wrong off ramp here listen Hamburg <laughs> is a city in Germany and hamburger <laughs> is a word for a sandwich from Hamburg and Hamburg existed during World War II so they they obviously had hamburgers, right? I mean, it only makes sense. And your character is from Hamburg? From Hamburg, that's exactly right. Yeah. I am a hamburger. I eat hamburger. <laughs> and they had cheese, too. I don't think it's out of the question. A guy in my unit found a source in Germany for, I think it's called a trekking burger or something. It's a cheeseburger in a can. Really? Uh, yeah, I haven't tried that yet. Uh, but definitely want to try to incorporate that in an event coming up. <laughs> so well, I have made fries, so it's not out of the you did blue make fries, to, yeah. And that's only a side dish for burgers. Totally. What is a what is a fry without a burger? <laughs> it's nothing. I made nothing, nothing, Chris. You made nothing. You made nothing. You should have had that canned trekking burger. I'm sure it's gross. <laughs> All right. On today's episode, as Lassa mentioned, we are going to talk about downtime activities. So we're talking about when you're at a reenactment, obviously 
most of the time at the reenactment, there's going to be some main thing that you're going to do, right? Like if it's a tactical reenactment, maybe the main focus is the actual battle part of it. Or if you're doing a public display living history event, maybe the focus of it is the time when um, you're doing demonstrations or manning a display for the public or just sitting in your camp and interacting with spectators as they come through. But sometimes, eventually, you're going to be in an event and you're going to have a time in between two different things and you're not really going to have anything to do. Um, and I find that those can be the most enjoyable times sometimes at an event. But you have to have some ideas about things that you can do to kind of entertain yourself, keep yourself busy, um, you know, so that you're not just sitting there wondering, well, what am I going to do now? So uh, I thought we could talk about some of those things. Absolutely. Downtime is my favorite time because that's when I get to sleep. Nice. Uh, I also like very much sleeping during downtime. I find sleeping outside at World War II reenactment events to be some of the best sleep that I've ever had. I find that sometimes I will sleep better laying on the ground in broad daylight than I do in my own bed at night. I don't know exactly why. I guess maybe I, I get tired, right, at the reenactment. I have to get up early. Maybe I didn't get that much sleep the night before or the sleep wasn't that good if it was uncomfortable in my tent, which happens sometimes. Cold tents are the worst to sleep in. But that's yeah. the thing with tents. They usually, like, it's, they're very self-contained, so it's easy to heat them up. It's just that heat disappears really quick if you don't keep the heat up. It can be tough, I find, going to sleep uh, when you're in a tent, right? Because Or, like, when you're in a cold tent. I mean, when you're, you've been, like, doing something, maybe you've been out on patrol or you're just been hanging out around the fire with your friends or whatever kind of event it is, and then it's time to go to sleep, and now you just walk over to this very dark, cold, dark, very dark, very cold place on the ground, you know, where you climb in on your hands and knees into this little tent, and then you lay down with your freezing cold blankets, and it's just, like, not that, like, welcoming, you know, going to bed feeling that, that people... You make prefer. it sound horrible. Okay, well, look, I may be talking about an experience that I had on Friday night, so, like, less than a week ago. <laughs> uh, I may or may not be directly thinking of something that happened to me less than a week ago that was uh, this exact unpleasant situation, but, uh, you know, it's not always like that. <laughs> Please tell us more. Well, uh, every year at this time... There is a reenactment event here in New England that I really enjoy that's in Stamford, Vermont. It's uh, Eastern Front Tactical that's run by the Living History Organization. It's a great site. It's a great event. But unfortunately, this, be, this year being what it is, uh, there, that event was canceled because the site couldn't be secured because of pandemic-related stuff. So my unit decided to host a very small invitation-only Eastern Front Tactical event at a private site in Vermont that we have that we use. Um, and the event was a success for us. It was a lot of fun. It was small, but that was always the plan. This event, the site can't um, sustain. It doesn't have parking for a lot of cars. It can't really be used by a lot of people at once. Um, but, you know, Friday night, Friday, I got there on Thursday night, slept in a cabin on the property. Friday, um, Ben, who's in my unit, and I set up our tent. and. I mean, there was a bunch of things that happened that probably shouldn't have happened exactly the way that they did. One of the things is that we decided to copy a tent style made with six Zeltzbahn shelter quarters. This was a style of tent that we've seen in some original photographs. Not a tremendous amount, but some. And it's a cool-looking tent, and it looks like it would be well-suited for a small number of people. We were planning on having th only three people sleeping in this. And we thought maybe it would be a, something a little bit different than the regular uh, four-person pyramid-style tent uh, that we would ordinarily use with those type that t number of people. An unbelievable fact, and I actually, please don't ask me to even explain how this could be possible, is that a Zeltbahn tent made with six Zeltbahn shelter quarters is smaller than one made with four. Um, the footprint is smaller, 
And so we set up this tent, but then when we went to lay down in it, it was like, we are going to be really, there's no room in here. There's no room in here for three people or barely room, right? We're going to be really crowded in here. And uh, I've never thought that, I, I never thought that that would be smaller. It is as wide in the front as a single Zeltbahn is, just like a pyramid. But these, the sides of it are shorter than the width of a single Zeltbahn. So it's, it's as, as big in the front as a four-shelter pyramid is, but front to back, it's a smaller dimension somehow. And it, it has to do with like how the ropes are. It has to do with the fact that you're using like the center of the Zeltbahn. It has two small grommets on the, on, in the middle. And you're using that for each corner, the little two grommet thing right in the middle of a single Zeltbahn. And in doing so, you're losing some, you're losing some dimension there. Um, rather than using only the, the corners for the corners. I don't know. It's, it's very hard to explain without, without I, I, you know, I'm sure people are trying to visualize what I'm saying. Trust me, there is, it's like some kind of trick. It's like an optical illusion or something, or origami. I don't even, it's like a, a puzzle. How to make something that is physically bigger, but it is actually smaller. <laughs> okay, that's how it is. Uh, it's stupid. It was a stupid thing. We will never do this again. Um, <laughs> but Friday, um, I cooked a meal. I made goulash, a recipe from the Tornister Lexicon book, cookbook. Um, and it was really pretty delicious. I mean, it probably could have put some salt in there. I didn't bring any salt. These realities of the field, right? Um, but then after that, uh, some of our friends from the Soviet Union came over to be friendly and we chatted with them for a little while and we thought we would maybe go over and visit with them for a little while so we went over there and it was very nice it was a good conversation and now it's time to go to sleep and it's just like make your way back to the tent uh the temperature it got down to 31 degrees fahrenheit so like negative one degrees celsius um that's pretty cold it's cold. I didn't really bring my like cold, cold weather gear because it was technically well, still the cold, summer. Well, it's not cold, cold weather. It felt cold. Uh, <laughs> it was cold. The tent was cold. Laying in there was cold. It was just me and Ben in there waiting for Kramars to come back, our, the other guy in my group, because he was, um, look, he was over there hanging out a little bit longer, realizing that when he comes, it's suddenly going to get super crowded. If you ha if I happen to fall asleep, I will be woken up when he does come back. Can't even really close up the tent the way that I would like to to retain body heat because he is still out there and is going to come back and open it up anyway. You know what I mean? It was just like it was yeah. one of those situations where it's like you know I I almost shouldn't even mention this, but look, sometimes it's like, am I going to be reenacting World War II while I'm asleep? No, right then why am I doing this? You know what I mean? Like, I can't... You're dangerously close to an inflatable mattress in a sleeping bag now. You're right. That's right. I shouldn't even say it, but that is the same logic, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, uh, that's that. But, look, sleep... Back to the downtime thing. Sleeping, in taking a nap in between activities it can be really nice i have slept at public displays i have slept at tacticals during the like lunch part or when i'm not on duty for whatever reason i will i will try to sleep whenever i can there was a guy who was in my previous unit um and he had like a slogan which was like uh why stand why stand up when you can sit down why sit down when you can lie down why lie down when you can sleep and that is like something that I kind of have taken to heart as a reenactor. And I will definitely sleep when I can. Um, and it's, it's actually funny to watch the reactions of spectators when they go to a public display event and somebody is sleeping. I remember we did an event here in Massachusetts one time and uh, one of our guys, he works nights. And so he's very tired usually during the first part of the day. So he was kind of just 
taking a break and getting some sleep and a slow time during the display and a family came over and the dad was like, you see that? He's talking to his son. He's like, you see that, son? That's how people used to sleep back then, <laughs> which is such a weird <laughs> thing to say. Did I, did I really sleep like differently though? That's very weird to say. <laughs> it's super weird. No, of course people didn't. The man was laying down and sleeping. You know, it's not like in 1945 it was usual that you would like lay down on the ground and just sleep out in the open during the day. You know what I mean? Uh, well, you know, they did not process the uh, wood, so. Right, again, yeah, no, the people think that there were differences between then and now that, that aren't. Um, and meanwhile, I've been thinking quite a bit about how World War II is basically modern, you know, and we don't really like, I don't think we give World War II sort of enough credit for being as recent as it is, you know, it seems sometimes like it was a real long time ago, but as far as world history goes, it was like yesterday, you know, and so, of course, things, as a lot of things As far as world history goes, exactly it was like this morning. Right. I mean, it, it, depending on how you want to look at that. Yeah. It's basically now, <laughs> you know. Um, but I was thinking about that with regard to some material culture stuff, you know, with like people talking about how, you know, how fabric has changed or whatever. And it's like, sure, obviously there are some manufacturing um, processes that are different now. The machinery is different now. Right. But it's like, it's this was still stuff that was mass produced in industrial factories in like a technologically advanced society. It's not like we have to be replicating stuff that was handmade on a you know on a simple loom in somebody's thatched roof cottage. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, back to the back to the downtime, I guess. So sleeping. Uh, being the one thing, another thing that I like to do a lot is eating. I know we kind of already talked about that a little bit in this podcast, but, um, you know, yeah, as I soon as it's downtime, you just go to your car, like, drive to McDonald's. No, I would, I am oh. not saying that I personally, <laughs> when I leave to go to the event, I always look in my bread bag and I make sure that there is some food in there. It doesn't have to be a lot of food. It doesn't have to be delicious food, but when I am leaving for the event, I want there to be something in my bread bag. And then if I have a, a break um, and I'm a little hungry, I will eat that, whatever it is. And one thing I, I keep in there a lot is like a can of tuna fish, uh, which is something that existed during World War II canned fish. It was obviously probably not exactly the same as a modern can of tuna fish, but I think that it was probably relatively similar you know canned fish in water or in oil um it's something that comes up a lot in historical documents and in memoirs and things like that so i'll bring that and then i have a i have my eating utensil and i have my uh can opener so i can get into the can and then you know maybe i'll just eat it just as it is or if someone has some bread i'll we can share or something like that um or, you know, like, I know we talked about this before in an episode about food, but cheese, sausage, other durable foods like that that you can just have, you know, wrapped up or even not sometimes, depending on what it is, in your bread bag. Um, I like to have that kind of thing as a snack. Some guys bring chocolate and stuff. I don't bring that stuff, but if other people do, I will definitely eat it. <laughs> yeah, you don't say no to chocolate. Well, when I'm in a reenactment, I... You know, look, it's tough for me to get the amount of calories in a day that I'm used to, so I am hungry a lot. So when there's food going around, I'm like not picky and I'll eat it, you know. I know we talked about this a little bit before where a lot of times you wind up having too much food because everybody brings something to share. Yeah, and you bring something to share, so you automatically already have way too much food on you. But another thing that I keep in my, um, that I keep in my bread bag is my Esbit stove. Uh, which is just this handy, awesome thing that I love to use during downtime to heat up, um, heat up food, or I'll use it to heat up water sometimes for shaving my face, or you could make, you could make tea or coffee if you like that kind of thing. Um, and sometimes like on a cold weather event, especially, it's just really nice to have something warm to warm you up a little bit. Also, I find that if you do this at a uh, public 
event, spectators absolutely are fascinated by the Esbert stove. They think it's awesome. Yeah, well, it's like super small and super handy. Yeah, they, people haven't seen something like it before. I mean, I've, I've done events sometimes where I'm at a public display and there's like a, a really cool truck or a motorcycle on one side of my display that's from some other reenactor, some other unit. And then on the, the other side of the display, they've got machine guns and mortars and stuff set up. But, like, I will draw a huge crowd frying an egg in my mess kit lid with an Esmond stove. <laughs> that's actually really cool, though. Well, it's something, you know, it's something people can relate to, for one thing. You know, everybody knows what it's like to eat eggs, and I think most people know what it's like to cook eggs and to see it done in a field by a guy who is sitting on the ground with this tiny little aluminum sort of a, a plate thing and you've got this little folding for people who don't know the esbit stove is just this little folding it's like a folding metal box and it has some fuel tablets inside and you you unfold this box which is very small it's like the size of the palm of your hand and you take one of those fuel tablets or two of them and put them in the middle and light the fuel tablet on fire. And you can boil water over that thing. Like the edges of the box will support your pot or like, in my case, the, the lid of my mess kit, which I'll use as a frying pan. Yeah, and it also kind of protects the uh, source of fire from wind as well. It's really handy. Yeah. Um, I love I love using it. Oh, me too. And then, like I mentioned, I'll use it to heat up water for shaving, which can be another downtime activity that I will do. If I'm at an event with my unit and it's an immersion event and we're trying to live the whole weekend as realistically as possible, we'll all shave in the morning, um, like together. You know, it's like, okay, guys, we're going to shave. And there's a wash basin there and everyone gets their shaving kit out and we, we make sure there's some warm water available and, uh, Everyone shaves kind of the, as best as they can with whatever they've got to shave in the field with. I sort of wish my unit did that more often. Uh, I remember back at a Belgium event, we didn't actually shave ever because, well, I suppose there was never time for it or we didn't, like, dedicate time for it. So by, like, day six, we did look like... <laughs> well, that's... For... We look like oboes. <laughs> Well, for the scenario that you were in, that's probably realistic, right? I mean, there's definitely um, certainly plenty of memoirs describing unshaven soldiers just going going into combat, living out in the field like that. But I know, it's yeah, some... but it's one of the few events we actually get to do that is like a week long. And uh, me and my unit co-commander, uh, we did actually put on the uh, agenda that we were supposed to shave, but we just didn't have time. Sure. Well, that's good. That sounds like a, like a, a, in theory, it can be a great event if you really like never have downtime or have very little of it. You know, an event that keeps you busy, that has a fast tempo, that's probably really realistic in a lot of ways. But of course, not, not every event is like that, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, that event was, I mean, it had a lot of downtime, but it was like every day was so busy. So when you first had downtime, it was more to uh, sit down and actually relax for like 10 minutes. Sure. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I love doing events like that. But of course, you know, sometimes maybe it's just like a, like a public display that I'm at with two other people. And there is no real scheduled thing. It's like, we're going to be here during these hours. And, uh, you know, people are going to come and ask us questions. And I will... Uh, you know, if, if there's some time that I can get in between talking to people, I'll just, I'll just shave if, if I need to, you know, at whatever time. And uh, that's another thing that, that can, it can draw a crowd and can drive interesting interactions with people is people see you shaving with the uh, 1940s, 1930s style safety razor um, and soap and a, and a dish of warm water or whatever it is. Um, you know, it harkens back to maybe they saw their their grandparents shaving with a razor like that or whatever, and so it's something that they can relate to. Yeah, I mean, for me, the uh, double-edged uh, safety razor has just become like my daily razor. For it is, it has been my daily. I mean, I don't shave daily, but when I do shave, I shave with a double-edged safety razor exclusively now. I'll never go back to using a yeah, plastic it's... cartridge razor. <laughs> 
<laughs> the plastic Gillette Max Fusion Mac 5000. They're ugly, they're insane, they're expensive. Blade. You know, I spend so so little money on razors using the uh, the double edge. Yeah. And I like the shave that I get from it, too. It's just better in all ways. I, I, I cut myself, like, a little bit sometimes, but that's no different. I can cut myself, I can... I don't know, I feel like I'm a soft little baby and I have a sensitive face and uh, I just think I could cut myself <laughs> with basically anything. You know, I like always cut my, my face, yeah. I don't know. It's embarrassing, I, I, should, be, I should have a tougher face. <laughs> I didn't expect to hear this tonight. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm going to just come right out and tell our whole audience that I have a tiny little baby face, you know, and I just, I don't really know why that is the case. Good genetics, I guess. Or bad, you know, like do you, mm. like dysgenic breeding over time. It's like if I have like stubble, if I get too much, if I don't shave in a week, like my my face gets very irritated from my own whiskers. You know, it's like my face <laughs> is attacking itself. It's true. <laughs> oh, I genuinely have no words. <laughs> what else we got for downtime? Like... Uh, Writing letters, right? You can, if you, uh, if you speak German and you're portraying a World War II German soldier at a uh, living history type display, I think it's really cool to, I don't know, write a letter home or write a letter to one of your, one of the guys in your group or whatever. And that can be like a really cool prop that your friend right if you write a letter to your friend if if you make it realistic if you use a, the right kind of writing instrument and the paper is period correct you can uh that's something he can keep as like a part of his kit you know here's a letter i got from my friend he can keep keep it tucked into his sold book or in his map case right if he has something like that um and if you don't speak german i mean you could there have been times that uh you know, we've just kind of written notes that we send to a messenger to bring, you know, a, a, maybe a humorous note uh, to somebody else in a different camp at the same public display, just kind of as something to do to pass the time, you know? Yeah. Um, I actually remember getting a letter from you suddenly in my mailbox, which yeah, you wrote during right. an event. Yeah, we wrote those, uh, you know, we've done that a couple of times where... Um, we'll be at an event and there's kind of some downtime. And so it'll be like, let's write some letters to our friends. So, um, you know, we'll pass around some, some like st correct period type stationery and people have pencils or whatever, and just write some letters to people that we're thinking about at the reenactment to other reenactors. And then after the event, you can drop that in the mail. And that's like, a, you know, it's a cool thing. I don't know. Yeah, I really liked it. Nice. Kind of made me. I was gonna say it made me feel like I was at the event, but it didn't really do that. But uh, <laughs> no, it was a cool thing. Well, it's it's you know you were included in that event in a sense. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you or like the concept of you, right? Your alter ego or whatever it is. You know, it, ideally, it would be really cool if it, like I could write a letter to your like World War Two character. You know, as my World War Two character, but. That we're entering into like a whole area of LARP that I know um, it, a lot of people just think is too dorky. I like it. I do. I do this kind of shit. I dig it. Uh, pen buddies, pen pals. Just. I mean, it could be cool. You could. I don't know. I'm. This could be a whole other topic, right? Is like you could actually, you could literally write back and forth to some other World War II person in a World War II setting. It's not impossible. I think it would be really cool if people would do that. I think this needs to be experimented on. Like, you could only do it during the event, right? Like, the rule would basically be, like, you can't write back until the next time that, you, like, you're in a fake make-believe World War II. You can't read or reply exactly. to the letter yeah, until you're be, at a reenactment. That would be cool. And you could write, you know, be like, hey, I got your letter, you know, and maybe there's some, been some time passed in the last event. You could say the mail must be delayed or whatever, but here's where I am now. Here's what I'm doing, you know, and, and have a conversation like that over time. I think that'd be really cool. I think it definitely needs to be experimented on. Yeah, that's a good idea. 
Um, but I, when I go to events, if I'm doing a, like a tactical immersion type event where, like I say, I'm just living the World War II life for the weekend, I'll, I might just have um, a couple of pieces of, of note paper and a pencil or something like that tucked in a pocket. If I'm doing a barracks event, I might have actual letter writing stationery and a fountain pen. And if I'm doing like a public display, sometimes I will bring a map case, which I don't, which like, look, it's not really something that's necessarily appropriate for what my reenactment group usually does, but it is something that kind of could have been around, right? And it's um, a prop that I can use at a public display to kind of include some, I don't know, some immersive paperwork stuff, you know, I'll tucked into my map case, I might have some dip pens, I might bring a bottle of ink or something, or just a couple of different pencils and um, different types of stationery and pre-printed postcards and things like that, that soldiers might have had or might have been able to get. Um, and then I can, I can just write whatever I want in there during the downtime at the display. Yeah, I think that sounds good. Yeah. Another thing that I will absolutely do during downtime is like make little repairs to my uniform and equipment stuff as needed. Um, and that's something where, you know, I often find myself kind of almost needing to make repairs like that. You know, my what would be downtime for me to sleep or do whatever I want. I can't sleep because in the first part of the day, one of my suspender buttons uh, blew off, you know, and now I need to stitch a new button on to help keep my trousers up. Or, you know, maybe I made a little tear in my trousers or something like that, and I want to fix it before the tear gets any worse or something like that. And so I carry a little sewing kit in my bread bag all the time just for this purpose, basically for like emergencies. And it, I will use it at events during like the downtime. Yeah, I've been. I've been thinking about this, and I have discussed it with my unit members as well. But um, uh, as most reenactors, uh, some of my uh, unit members they want to repair their uniform at events. But wouldn't it be more correct that the uniforms are repaired before the event because German soldiers would constantly fix their uniforms? And not like wait till an event. I don't know. It doesn't make no, sense. No, I, I agree with you. I don't I don't think that waiting for an event is the best way to do it. Um, for one thing, certain types of repairs, I mean it's it's almost well, I guess looking at the big picture, it's like when did soldiers repair their uniforms? And I think the answer is well they repaired them kind of when they could. And when a soldier is in the field, he may or may not have time to uh, repair his uniform. Um, I know I, I've talked to veterans in the past who've told me that, look, if they were in the field, especially in like a combat type situation, and a button fell off their clothes, I mean, it just didn't get replaced, you know? If, if your button fell off, okay, well, now you don't have a button until the time comes to rest and refit and maybe you're going to be in a barracks or someplace safe and that's when you can have the time to sit down with a needle and thread and and do that kind of work but a lot of events you know it's not a rest and refit type situation it's a field type situation or even specifically like a combat type situation and uh so so a lot of soldiers in those situations probably didn't even have like a sewing kit at all you know they probably didn't have a needle and thread or they might not have had it um but sometimes some events that i do especially like the like i keep mentioning these public display events um you know i'm kind of portraying a soldier in a rear area in a non-combat situation right because i'm sitting around and i'm answering questions from little kids so um there i'm kind of pretending that i am in like a rest type of a place so i think it is reasonable to do you know uniform maintenance stuff at an event like that or like i say you're at the event and you're you know i ate too many cheeseburgers and a button blows off my clothes because i've increased my girth <laughs> you know then i just i have to i have to fix that right away 
That's too funny. But yeah, I, I, I mean, sewing kit, I always carry that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, mine, so my sewing kit, I've had like a bunch of sewing kits during my time in World War II reenacting, and I've had like really elaborate ones full of like real, you know, period type supplies and original buttons and everything. And But those things like aren't really necessarily functional the way that I used to build these things. I used to build these sewing kits where I had a kind of a fantasy that someone would be like, oh, do you have a sewing kit? And I could be like, yeah. I do check this out and they'd be like, wow, this is incredible. You know, like, no, that is like, that, never, that day never came. Um, but maybe if I was like going to do a barracks event, I might bring something like that. But what I have tucked into my bread bag is a little tiny cloth pouch that I made myself. It's not based on anything real. It's based on my idea about, you know, what is something that could have maybe existed and then inside, it's got some safety pins. It's got some, some buttons that are the same as the type of buttons that are on my clothes. It's got some sewing thread, um, a, a couple of different colors, which is on a cardboard spool. It's very period-looking stuff. And there's, uh, I think I might even have a tiny pair of scissors in there or something. Um, and everything is correct for World War II in that pouch. And the pouch is something that could have existed World War, in World War II. It's just a simple pouch. but. Um, this is built not for showing off or for, um, you know, to have this really cool object in my kit. It's there for use. It's there to be practical. It's there in case I have an emergency. Because as I mentioned, if a soldier's button flew off in World War II, maybe he just went without a button. But, um, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to go all day with my my suspenders flapping around if I can avoid it. You know, I'd like to be able to fix that if I could. I'm not going to get issued a new pair of trousers. I'm not going to get issued a new pair of suspenders. You know, these things are mine, and if there's a problem, I have to fix it. Yeah, exactly, and it's really annoying to walk without suspenders. Right, or like, you know, like, let's say, you know, the suspenders button onto my trousers with two buttons in the back. One of those buttons blows off. Now all of that stress of holding up my pants on my huge gross body is now uh on one button and that button is going to fly off and now i just don't have any suspenders or anything to hold my pants up you know so i will absolutely make it a priority to fix that if i can yeah i mean of course of course you would yeah um now for downtime for me uh i think it goes a lot on what you said uh, but uh, also when it comes to because of the unit vehicle the truck I've been talking about way too long on the on the podcast um, a lot of the downtime goes to just looking over that one as well and with that I don't really have any downtime anymore to That's do cool. nothing I like that yeah that makes sense you know where if you have something, an asset at that level, and you've brought it to the event, something that requires, you know, constant attention, yeah, that's your that can be your event right there. Yeah, and that's cool. I think that's also why I had very little downtime in Belgium because we're many countries away from home with an eighty-year-old truck. Sure. No, I can totally see that. Um, yeah, I mean that's that, that when you're reenacting at that level, that's like super demanding. You know, um, I think back to the events that you know, like the event that you came to last, that we've talked about before. That was the Battle of the Bulge reenactment at Fort Indian Town Gap when that was a, an event that used to happen. Um, yeah, I had scheduled like office hours where I had to be on duty, so I had to be on duty from nine, you know, from like nine o'clock in the morning until five o'clock at night or something. It was like a full-time thing. And uh, during that, that, those hours, there was really no downtime. I was super busy. I was filling out documents for people, um, you know, assisting with yeah. rear scenarios at the event. And there was no time for me to be sitting there thinking, well, what should I do? But of course there was like, after my, my busy time ended after my on duty time was over, there was like, you know, hangout time or like time to unwind, time to do whatever kinds of things that 
a soldier might have done when he was off duty in a situation like that in World War II. You know, have dinner, uh, meet with your friends, stuff like that. Well, I think you didn't really have too much downtime on that either because you did hold some like Solbuk writing courses and stuff like that. Right. Even after even after the the official business hours were over, we you know to do some immersive or instructional type stuff just for us. Yeah. Um, but you know, then I I would maybe drink too much red wine and and then it would become a disaster. But uh, you know, that's kind of something uh, I that like. That didn't sometimes. happen. Well, yeah. I mean, I said maybe. You know, I didn't. I'm not confirming yeah. that happened. But uh, you know, look. Uh, to me, sometimes at certain type of events where there's a lot of work that goes into it, a, a lot of focus is required of it, a lot of seriousness is required, you know, there can be a sort of a realistic, uh, fun aspect to like a work hard, play hard dynamic, you know, where you're like working really hard all day and then at night you can kind of unwind and enjoy the successes of the day together with your friends that are on your team. I agree. It's, uh, that's a good philosophy. And, you know, uh, like, speaking of your team and downtime, it's like if you realize that everybody in your group is currently uh, kind of idle and no one is really doing anything, you know, maybe you want to uh, explore the idea of doing something together as a team, like maybe practicing some rifle drill, which I think is always a good use of time, or... Um, or regular drill, which should be prioritized over rifle drill. Yeah, I, that's kind of what I mean. You know, just the the drill and commands <laughs> of of formations and stuff like that. Um, Hand signals can be practiced. Yeah, I mean, if you can you can learn a song together. If you if a couple of people that are in the group maybe know how to sing a song, know the words to a, a song that German soldiers sang, um, you can teach it to other people or. You know, you could play a game together. That's something that I really like to do. We play this game uh, that's called Mensch Ärger dich nicht, that was a popular game before and during World War II in Germany. And I've seen a number of photographs of uh, World War II Wehrmacht soldiers playing this game. I know that this game was like su supplied in some cases to uh, Wehrmacht Soldatenheim facilities where soldiers could go for recreation. And uh, it's a game that will make you want to jump off a cliff. I mean, it's just a brutal harsh game uh which can be fun right to hear the cries of anguish or to, <laughs> to have the joy of just vanquishing your opponent in this unimaginably frustrating game right you now i really revenge. your pitch really sold me i want to play this game you got to play it it's uh it's fun we have like a I don't know, maybe it's like a 1930s Dutch edition of this game, um, which is, the, it's the same, the packaging and artwork is the same, but it's in Dutch language, and I think it's totally plausible that German soldiers pretty much wherever could have had something like that picked up at some point in the past, and uh, and that's what we use, but... When, but you're playing you know, on an original? Well, it's... I think, it, I don't I don't know. I, I think that this game might be from the 1930s. It's It's... It belongs, the board that we use belongs to one of the other guys in the group. And he basically eventually donated it to the group. So I get to be the person who's in charge of making sure that it always comes. And uh, we have lost most of the pieces to the game over time, the playing pieces. So I have had to replace them. I got some buttons that I painted different colors to make sure that there are enough uh, pieces for everybody to play. <laughs> that sounds and, so good. Yeah. It's, it's this, there is no collectible value to this thing anymore. You know, maybe there was, but over the years of using it and reenacting, I mean, it's, it's held together with tape, um, but it works. It serves the purpose and we really enjoy playing it. And there are some other games that I have, or that other guys in the group have two different types of board games that we've played before. Uh, a lot of them are kind of similar where... You know, you have to make your way around a board, and then if you hit certain types of obstacles or if someone else lands on you, you have to go back to the start, which is, you know, super frustrating. Um, especially, like, if you've got six people playing, and so there's a lot of pieces on the board at any time, and the chances of you making it all the way around without somebody else landing on you becomes very small in the game. Like, this game mentioned Air I think I saw online, or maybe it's even on the box or something, that it's a game that takes 20 minutes to play. If you have if you have 
if you have six people playing that game, no, there you're not going to have a winner after 20 minutes. I mean, you may you may you may never get a winner because everyone may just give up before the, anyone actually is able to succeed at this thing. It's a hard game, you know, in that way. But it's fun. Um, also, like card games, I think probably a lot of people listening to this are aware that German soldiers often played a game called Scott and. That's a game that I frankly don't know how to play. I've tried to learn how to play it, but it's it's super complicated and impossible. I yeah, feel Diesel like Dotten has a guy, don't be... they? Have you ever played it? No. Well, it's like, tried. It, it, I just, you know, you got a bid. There's like an auction aspect of it and, you know, all these tricks and all these rules. I mean, it's super complicated i'm sure it's a fun game it's probably a fun addictive game that features a i lot think in... no germans play this game because of the complications or how complicated it is maybe only germans can play it yeah oh man maybe that's the thing yeah like you have to be literally an <laughs> ethnic cultural german race in germany even to begin to understand how to play this game for fun because i i think i could learn the game it's a, so it's a four-person game if it was me and three people who knew how to play and they were willing to kind of like show me as it went, I'm sure that it would be possible to pick it up. But just reading, trying to envision this game, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm low IQ. I, I maybe you should it. learn it and make like a YouTube tutorial on it for all the other actors. I even had a, uh, at one point, this was now almost 20 years ago, I had like a, like a CD where you could play the game on a CD on your computer. And uh, I still couldn't get it. Of course, part of the reason for that was probably that the whole game was in German and my like German language ability at that time was uh, not as good as it is now. So I couldn't, I couldn't really follow what was happening a lot of the time. Yeah. But, um, but there are other card games that German soldiers played and there are other card games that, you know, they could have, could have played, right. Could have learned um, in, in the past, I used to play this game called Schwimmen that was a card game, and it's played with uh, a deck that has less than 52 cards. It's played with basically a Scott deck. It's like uh, Ace, the Ace, and then I think like cards 7 through like the, the face cards, right? It doesn't have the lower number cards. And and um, this is a, like a supposedly like a traditional German game, and I don't really remember where I learned this exactly or how I learned this game. And I'm, I I probably should look it up and see if this really was a popular game in the 1930s and 40s in Germany. But um, it was fun and it was a very simple game, easy for anybody to learn, anybody to pick up. You didn't have to be like a game expert to do it. Um, so that, that was cool. Well, those are the best games, games yeah. you can just pick up and play. Exactly. Um, and it would be fun, you know, you, you would, uh, we, that's a game where you actually kind of bet. If you lose a round, you have to throw in um, something, right, money or whatever it is. And then uh, at the end, whoever is the winner gets, gets the whole pot from everybody. So um, we had some like reproduction Reichsmark bills that we used to use for this purpose for kind of gambling with. Um, you know, nothing that has any real value, but just even just for the purposes of who wins or loses. No, I agree. Uh, another thing I was um, thinking about when it comes to downtime, something some of my unit members sometimes do is actually uh, just exploit the downtime to actually go around and take some period photos as well with yeah, uh, vintage cameras. That's a great idea. You know, um, it can be really hard when you are, you know, like in a tactical right or when you're marching with your group or doing the things that soldiers did it's not really always like possible even to just like whip out a camera and snap away you know it may not be possible yeah. so i like to in the downtime definitely um make some time to to take some pictures you know and i'll take some posed pictures i'll be like hey we're not doing anything let's like go over here i want to get a picture of everybody and yeah, like a group photo. Exactly. And I think it's great to have candid photos of people who maybe aren't even aware that the picture is going to be taken, but uh, that the picture is going to be taken. But a lot of times, 
period photos, they were like very conscious that a photo was going to be taken because the film was expensive, right? Or, or difficult to get or whatever, or is limited anyway. And so people would really put kind of thought a lot of times into, okay, what am I taking a picture of? Um, so you see pictures where it's just guys standing there looking at the camera. They know that their picture is being taken. I like to take pictures like that. Yeah. I think like that's like I was gonna say like ninety percent of all original photos, but but yeah, there's many photos like that. Right, like the Kriegsberichter, you know, maybe he was tasked with like taking action shots or like documenting what was happening in a battle or at a specific place. Um but that's not most of the photos that were taken during World War Two. Yeah. John Doe, uh he took photos of his friends basically. If he had a camera, if he had access to a camera and film, yeah, he would. He was taking pictures, you know, for his own memories and to send home. And that was like, like he was taking pictures in his downtime, you know. So um, we can uh, take pictures in our downtime. I'm always impressed, Lassa, when you say something like John Doe, because I feel like that's such an English language specific thing. It's cool that you know all of this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I would. Like there is there a is there a Norwegian term for that? Yeah, Oran Luriman. What is it? Is it cool? It's Oran Luriman. That just sounds like a bunch of syllables. I can't even make any sense of. <laughs> it sounds cool though. What does it mean? Um, it Ora is a regular first name, and Luriman is like Norwegian. Oh, that's cool. I so that's it. our John Doe. That's really cool. Nice. Good cultural information uh, we can share with our listeners here. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I'll, I've, no, but I've, I appreciate it. Thank you. No, it's, it's always cool. You do it all the time. It's like cool cultural background thing. I don't know. It's, I, don't know I don't really know how to... It's impressive. I kind of feel <laughs> sad about it. I kind of... No, like, like American... I, I don't know. I could go on and on. It's a weird thing. I only wish I was this I like good in German. <laughs> Me too. I'm much better than my German. <laughs> I don't know what the German thing for John Doe is. I maybe I can think about Neither it. Neither do I. I think I've heard it though. I have heard it. I know there is such a thing. I don't know. Um, but just like thinking about you know other downtime stuff. I mean, I have sometimes I'll know that going into an event that I'm going to have a bunch of extra time, and so I'll bring like. Later Fet, which is like a boot dubbing product, like a boot grease type thing. I'll bring that to the event in like a reproduction period style tin and I'll treat my leather gear at the event. Or um, if it's an event where I might be able to use a typewriter, I will bring a typewriter. Um, I've done this before at field events. I mean, there's lots of photographs of German soldiers in the field and they have to write a report or do some kind of clerical task and they're using a typewriter, you know, on the back of a truck or just on their lap or whatever, you know, so I've used a, yeah. uh, I've used an overturned, uh, like a laundry basin before as a, as a writing desk. And I'll just make copies of reports or type up reports. Um, I love, I you know, love with that. A typewriter. That is cool. I mean, I, yeah, I wouldn't bring the typewriter to like every event, but you know, depending on, I, a lot of the events that I do are annual events where I've done them before. I know what to expect. I know how much time I'm going to have. And I know I'm going to have some extra time. So I'll think, okay, I'll bring this. And this is a task that I can do for myself. You know, I think about it in advance. I think that is clever. I was also thinking about stuff that my unit members does uh, do on their uh, downtime. And one of our guys, uh, he likes to bring his bicycle to like public events and just on his downtime, just take the bicycle and bike around the event, uh, the event area. Another one really likes cool. to bring his wind-up gramophone. That's awesome. For playing music while chilling. Um, yeah, all sorts of like simple things like that. I mean, bicycle and gra- wind-up gramophone isn't that simple, but uh, I mean, it's not like a specific activity or something. It's just like to do it. Yeah, it's kind of like every you know a lot of people in reenacting. Maybe not everybody. Maybe everybody has kind of their own like, just like people today, right? Everyone's 
got their own hobbies and interests and so one person's interest maybe is music and he knows that there's going to be some downtime at this event and it's a situation where they might have had access to a gramophone so we'll bring that another person is maybe into cycling and has a period type bicycle that they can ride i mean it's like me with the typewriters or the other stuff the downtime at events can be a good way to kind of indulge a like hobby in a hobby you know or do a a period style version of a hobby that you enjoy in everyday modern life. Exactly. And I think I think that kind of sums it up as well that downtime at events is when you can uh, do your hobby within a hobby, be it typewriting or music or cameras or what have you. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, I think that we have covered uh, downtime pretty good. Was there anything else you wanted to throw in there, Lassa? There was not. Not regarding downtime. Okay, cool. Um, I guess I'll just throw out there like a couple of little quick non-downtime related note, reenacting notes. Uh, it Like right now is kind of heading into the busy time for me for reenacting. The fall usually has a lot of events, and I think that this fall... Um, they might be different events, they might be different kinds of events, but I still think I'm going to be doing quite a few, so uh, I'll have a bunch of that kind of stuff to talk about in the coming weeks. So that's exciting. That's very exciting. Uh, I love listening to you talk about your recent events. Cool. Um, We're it, planning an event very soon, too, actually, so hopefully something turns out of that. We're nice. supposed to have a tactical I was talking about, but uh, it had to be cancelled Sadly, it's because of force majeure. Yeah. Well, that's that's a lot of that going around. Um, yeah. And then I guess the other thing that I wanted to mention was uh, the topic for our next episode. Uh, if anyone has any ideas or anything that they want us to throw in there in advance. Yeah. Uh, the next. So we're gonna... Yeah. You, you do it. Okay. Uh, I guess... Lars and I have decided that it's going to be about the organization of Wehrmacht units, uh, which is something that I think a lot of reenactors struggle with because it's different from modern militaries or, you know, maybe they just aren't familiar with any military organization at all. And all the different unit types and the different subunits within each unit, um, especially for people who aren't like native speakers of German, uh, there's a lot of jargon there, a lot of vocabulary that can be daunting. And so I think people, a lot of people struggle with this stuff. Um, and so we are going to break it down. We are going to talk about the German division, what the subunits were, um, you know, all the way down to individual squads and up and the different uh, levels at which stuff happens. So I think that'll be a, a pretty cool episode. Lots of technical stuff to talk about. Yeah, I'm actually looking really forward to this because uh, the topic is actually something we uh, cover a lot in my unit as like sort of like to teach everyone because it is in my opinion such a vital thing to to know when you do world war ii uh german reenactment i agree with you i think it's a hyper important thing to know i think that um you know to try to portray anything larger than a platoon or a tsug you really need to have an understanding of how these pieces fit together or you're not going to be able you're just not going to be able to do it Exactly. So, so maybe it'll be um, helpful for some people and kind of a refresher for people who maybe already know it. I hope it won't actually be boring for anyone. But of course, you know, we'll have a lot to talk about. But if well, you're out there we're listening, so and you're thinking about it this, won't and you're be like, boring. yeah, I, I always like wondered like about you know how this unit type was organized or like you know what is the relation between. You know, could could you explain to me in plain terms what the relation between this unit type and this unit type is, or how did the you know the color piping system work, or whatever? If you have questions like that, let us know, and we'll address it on the podcast. Exactly, and the that episode is the next one, which is due the eighth of October. All right, this one is supposed to air on September twenty fourth, which is tomorrow. So uh, if you're listening to this on September twenty fourth, that means we did everything right and. Uh, and we have recorded it the previous day, so this is the freshest. This will be the freshest content I think we have ever revealed for people. My calendar says the twenty fourth. 
That's right. It's going to be today <laughs> for you. So, um, yeah, I hope we can do that because Mike, our dear editor, uh, is on vacation and he is going to be very, very disappointed with us if we don't get the uh, episode up on time. So we are going to do it. We're going to do it for you guys and for Mike and everyone's going to be Mostly happy. for Mike. I, uh, he, he's so harsh in meetings. <laughs> All right, uh, last I'll let you go because it's the middle of the night and you have to edit this episode so that it can air today. So <laughs> I hope you get some rest, but not too much, so that you can do this. And to everybody else out there, I will see you in the field. I'll see you in the field. Bye.